Hello, everyone. Uh, today is uh, Wednesday, July 8th. My name is Luke Thomas, 2015. This is the Promotional Law Practice live chat. Quick production note. Um, we're experiencing some technical issues on the MMA fighting account. So I am streaming this chat live on my personal YouTube account. But what I'm going to do when the chat is over is I'm going to take it down from my account and then just upload it to the MMA fighting account. I know it's kind of confusing, but it's probably the best way to handle this uh, until we can get that issue resolved. So a little bit weird, but if you're watching on the site now, um, you shouldn't have any issues. And if you follow directly from the MMA fighting account on YouTube, we'll have this remedied as soon as possible once the chat is over. So thank you for dealing with that and, and being patient. Um, today, what a big week, right? You've got tomorrow, Invicta 13. You've got on Saturday, UFC 189. You've got on Sunday, the Ultimate Fighter 21 finale. Um, so today's a big show. A lot to get to today. Lots of different uh, interesting content. you still got Josie Aldo's future. Still got some Reebok questions. Still got questions generally that I'm sure you all want to get to. We'll do that and more here on today's live chat. So best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com. And uh, you can also get at me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Thomas or facebook.com slash Luke T Sports. Uh, no diet soda today. Only got uh, coffee. Yum yum. Not so bad, right? Uh, <clears throat> tried to lessen the amount of diet soda I drink because you all kick my ass every day about it, and uh, probably a good thing anyway. All right. With that out of the way. Oh, and by the way, if you're watching this now, please give it a thumbs up. Let folks know you're watching it. Be a kind soul. I would greatly appreciate it. Okay. With that out of the way, let's get to these questions. Let's see. Hang on a second. Got people blowing me up, son. All right. One of the most overlooked fights on this weekend's pay-per-view is Gunnar Nelson versus Brandon Thatch. I think it's an absolutely fascinating fight. Could you break it down? Who do you see winning? I haven't thought too much about it. For all the same reasons, probably some of you other guys haven't. It's just been so focused on other things. I've been really sort of pouring over um, the main event a lot for UFC 189. I haven't given the other fights uh, consideration. Obviously, both guys coming off of losses. I think that's important to note. Um, it's going to be interesting. I think if Thatch tries to fight at range, uh, I don't know how it's going to go because you have the sideways stance of Nelson, the sort of in-and-out pot shot thing. Would that be enough to hit and get away? Thatch can be baited into exchanges. That that seems to me a possibility. Or on the other hand, I think that Thatch is the more powerful guy, right? Both physically and I think his strikes seem to have a little bit more zip and pop to him. So could he match him with his sort of more tie-style kicks uh, at range? Um, especially slowing him down with leg kicks, which Thatch is pretty good at. Thatch also likes a lot of flying stuff, though, so I'm a little bit concerned. But I think if he tries to fight there, it's not necessarily to his top benefit unless he sees something that we don't in the course of the fight. I think the best place for him will be inside boxing range because if you can stuff the takedowns, you eliminate basically Nelson's best weapon. He's got other weapons, but that's his best one, right, being on the ground, back takes, things of that kind. So if you can, if you can nullify that and then you can crush him with your – um, power combinations inside. If you can, if you can sort of work in a jab, if you can get him to slow down, if you can get him to think and react to what you're doing, I think that's probably the best way to go about it. Because you're going to stand outside kicking range, you're giving him the second best thing that he does well. That doesn't seem to be the best thing either. 
to me, that inside space, the boxing range, is probably going to be the best thing for Thatch. Can he do it? You know, I don't know. I don't know. But if I'm Thatch's corner, that's probably what I'm thinking. I can hit harder. I've got probably faster hand speed and a few other things as well. And so when you when you just add all those combinations up, you know, the more physical guy, probably the qu- quicker guy, maybe to an extent, at least the more explosive guy. I don't know if he can would you know maintain that over the course of three rounds. Um, but just boxing him up inside, provided you can stuff the takedown. That's a big if. But I think he can, you know, so we'll see. Similar to what Rick Storty did, now that I think about it, you know, stuffing takedowns, popping the jab, then working the combinations, getting his back against the fence, right? Reduce the movement, make him box you, stuff his takedowns. Gunnar Nelson has some problems with that. Someone says, Gunnar holds the belt before July 2017. Mark my words. I've been wrong many times, but I would be shocked if that happened. Uh, Connor McGregor weighs 172 pounds. Luke, Chael asked Connor his weight last week, and he replied 172. I can't believe he is really that heavy given how lean he is. When BJ Penn was fighting 155, he would weigh around 162. Connor is 10 pounds heavier than that and fighting a lighter weight class. Um, someone's asked, do you know if Connor uses an IV? I do not know if he uses an IV, although it's something that um, uh, to be noted there. But, you know, I, I saw, again, I talk about this all the time. I saw him, what was it, the 183 um, Q&A. And then I saw him sort of more up close. Um, and, dude, he's a monster. He's a, I was shocked. I was like, this guy is a featherweight? It just makes no sense. You know, he talks about his power. I think that's where partly his power issue is. He's just fighting in a weight class that is arguably he's too big for. You know, um, do you guys remember the weigh-in special that he did? He spoke to Ariel on Fox Sports Live before the Seaver fight. And he looked horrible. But he made 145 on purpose to show that, like, you know, because you get the one-pound allowance when it's a non-title fight. But if it's a title fight, you have to make exactly on the nugget whatever the weight class limit is. And uh, he did that even though, obviously, the Super fight was non-title, just as, like, a gesture to Aldo. And he looked, I mean, miserable. Miserable. So, you know, if you're Chad Mendez, you know, I don't know what kind of shape he's in. But if he had a f- full camp, and I know he didn't, but I'm just saying, if he did, I would be... I would make testing Connor's cardio a key component of that. Not because I don't think he's a consummate professional, but because I don't care who you are. Losing that kind of weight has consequences. It just does. I mean, he looks, I mean, that's, he does it and the credit to him. It's kind of amazing that he can do it. You know, he's got, I think his willpower in his mind is tremendous and no one should overlook that. But at the same time, man, that is a, a gigantic cut for a guy. Um, and then you know, how do you do the rehydration process? How does that go? It's a lot, man. It's it's a lot. Uh, okay. Gilbert Melendez caught cheating. By the way, real quickly, it's kind of funny that the two best well, not the two best guys, two of the best guys in that division, Aldo and McGregor, both sort of really struggle to get to that weight class. Really struggle. I wonder if there was something in between. Featherweight and lightweight, like um, you know, like a one forty nine or one fifty, um, 
not that I think there's a ton of guys who would fit into that, but I, I, I wonder what would happen. Like, people always talk about, well, there should be a cruiserweight in MMA. No, there shouldn't. There's just not nearly enough guys to make that an actual division. But just, you know, I think when, for example, Matt Hughes fought Hoist Gracie, they fought at like a 175-pound catchweight. I think that's what that was, something like that. And if you go back and look at the weigh-in photos, Matt Hughes looked huge, huge at that weigh-in. Like the extra five pounds felt like a almost a new weight class, man. It was crazy how much bigger he looked, at least for by weigh-in time. I was I was looking at him, I was like, I had already thought that Hughes was going to win. You know, I thought that the whole arguments about, well, Hoist fought three guys in one day was kind of a, 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 you know, a ridiculous argument. This is not the same kind of challenge, but... Uh, but when I saw him at the weigh-ins, I was like, oh, damn, Hoist is in trouble. Hoist is in big trouble. Uh, go back and look at those weigh-in photos, man. Just that five-pound difference was like, you know, Matt was always big. Don't get me wrong. But there was extra special bulk um, for that fight. All right, Gilbert Melendez caught cheating. At this point, it seems that everyone isn't even shocked anymore. Were you surprised in your reaction to the news? I think Eddie Alvarez deserves huge respect now. Well, he deserved huge respect before. Now is a little bit different. But sure, I mean, beating a guy who may have been taking some sort of performance-enhancing drug of some kind, uh, having an eye blown up, all that stuff, all that stuff is, uh, you know, just to overcome that is crazy. Um, hold on a second. Am I shocked? I'm not shocked by any of this. First of all, let me just say something. I'm not going to defend Gilbert Melendez. What I am going to say is he said he didn't realize what he had taken. And folks are asking, you know, how do these guys not know? How do these guys not know? It's very easy for a guy not to know. Didn't say it's okay for a guy not to know. Just said I I can entirely believe it. These guys, these fighters, what a lot of them, if you, you should watch them in your camp if you ever get a chance. If you ever get a chance to, like, train at a gym and just see the guys and see how they interact and, and how they handle weight cuts and stuff, I guess I've been very lucky in that sense. When they compete, what they want to do is just focus on what they have to, and they want to let everyone else around them take care of everything else so that you can literally eliminate as many distractions or other challenges as possible. Only thing you have to figure out is, and when am I going to throw the left hook? How do I set up the feint with the level change? And what happens if I take his back? Do I want to go seatbelt grip this way or whatever? <laughs> whatever the case. That's what you want to focus on. And so they just farm out um, what they want to do. I remember when George Lockhart, who everyone knows, um, I remember he was doing the camp for Mike Easton when Easton fought Chase Beebe, right? Now, Easton wound up losing that fight, but I just mean Mike's always been in tremendous physical condition. Mike essentially was just sort of standing there like, okay, tell me what to do next, you know? Tell me what to do next. And they were giving him, you know, take this now, eat this then, drink this here. Do you think he was reading the labels on those things? Like, of course not. Of course not. Now, that's... Now that's related to a weight cut, but, you know, if a, if a guy's a nutritionist and they just say, hey, eat this or take this supplement, what are you going to do? Are you going to challenge it? These fighters don't want to have to think about that. They really just truly don't want to have to worry, oh, God, okay, well, this has benzium phosphate in it, and this has – they don't do any of that, very, very few of them. Some of the more conscientious ones, some of the ones who um, are a little more thoughtful about it, they might go through the motions. But I just want to point out that, A, there is stuff you can take at GNC that makes you pop. And it is, if you're taking high enough doses anyway. And B, 
Um, it is not in any way shocking to me that if it were actually the truth that Melendez took something that some other specialist or trusted confidant told him to take, he didn't think twice about it being illegal. That does not make it okay. Responsibility still falls on the fighter to understand what they're putting inside their body. What I am trying to say is, is um, that's not the same kind of malfeasance as straight up knowingly taking something to get a performance-enhancing benefit that you know to be wrong. Um, and, of course, there's the gray area where maybe you should be asking questions and maybe you didn't because you just didn't want to know the truth. You know, we, we can all talk about that. But I'm just pointing out it is possible, however unlikely, it is possible that um, Melendez took something inadvertently that he wasn't aware of that caused this kind of thing uh, uh, until we know more facts. I mean, how much he popped for and and whatever else, right? Um, just want to point that out. Secondly, am I surprised? No. No, we live in a sport where everyone, if they want to, has an incentive to take this stuff. This is sort of what I'm trying to talk about. We all want to focus in on the punishment side of things, thinking that will deter use, and maybe it will, although I have some doubts about it, but maybe it will, without sort of really pointing to the underlying condition that there is tremendous incentive for prize fighters to take performance-enhancing drugs. There's tremendous incentive for professional athletes to use performance-enhancing drugs. There are many reasons for deterrence as well. Um, I think to some degree, punishment does, in fact, deter use. But what we have to decide is how much punishment for how much deterrence, what cost-benefit analysis is there, and how much squeeze do we have to put on before we get enough juice. And when we put on that much squeeze and we get that much juice, what are we doing to the sport generally? Right, That's sort of the issue here. But in no way is this surprising. Uh... So, oh, by the way, someone says that Jeremy Botter reported that Conor McGregor does not use an IV. There you go. Props to Jeremy Botter for the report. So, uh, anyway, that's sort of the argument about this. Like, if they could say anyone, they could say St. Pierre, they could say Penn. I mean, Penn would be a bit shocking, I suppose, because he talked all that beer and hot dog stuff. They could say Brock Lesnar. They could say, well, they already got Anderson Silva. They could say um, uh, Conor McGregor. They could say Max Holloway. They could say Cubs. They could say anyone, 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 anyone. They've all got tremendous incentive to use, all of them. Um, whether you want to accept that is a, a different choice you have to make. But n no name to me is surprising. Zero, none of them, not one. Someone says, what excuse does Cyborg give for not dropping to Bantamweight after this weekend's fight? That it's ridiculous that she's being asked to go down to a weight class. She clearly has trouble making. I like how everyone frames it as like, oh, Cyborg's got an excuse. Yeah. Yeah, she does have one. It's called a legitimate one. That going down to Bantamweight is an insane. Everyone, well, these fight cuts, these weight cuts are so dangerous, man. Look at all these dangerous weight cuts. I'm glad you saw us getting rid of old IVs. And then you got people going, what, what's, what's Cyborg's excuse going to be now? Oh, I don't know. How about your hypocrisy? Maybe. We don't want dangerous cuts in MMA unless you're going to make Cyborg versus Rousey. Then we don't care about dangerous cuts at all. Double gun point and the wink. Yeah. Decide what you want. All right. UFC 189 pay-per-view by prediction. This is the big one. Guy with a screen name that says Diet Soda. 
Someone says, all right, Luke, it's the Wednesday before UFC 189. Yes, it is. Someone says, we consider you the Dave Meltzer of web traffic. Okay, I will take that. What do you think the range of UFC 189 pay-per-view buys will be on Saturday? Are we talking 500 to 700K? Okay, couple of points here that you have to understand about web traffic. Number one, I do not know if Conor McGregor can pull on pay-per-view. We'll find that out. What I do know is that he has a proven, demonstrated ability to draw web traffic in and out of fights across platforms when he fights. So if he doesn't even have a fight coming up and he's just in the news, boom. All right. Not everyone is like the biggest thing ever, but there's a general uh, uh, higher level of interest in the kind of things he has to say and do. Okay. That's the first. Secondly, you look at where he's fought. He has fought on a pay-per-view card. He has fought on Fight Pass. He has fought on Fox Sports 1. Now, I can't recall exactly what the web traffic was, whether it spiked for him during the Poirier fight, which was on the pay-per-view card. What I can tell you is when he fought on Fight Pass opposite Brandau or when he fought Seaver, which was on Fox Sports 1, he did big numbers, right? The Fight Pass traffic was not the same as, you know, a big pay-per-view. It, it can't be, right? you got to be realistic about what I'm saying here. But what I am saying is for Fight Pass traffic, like the kind of stuff we normally get for those kinds of events, I think he, his is the record by far for us. Like, not even – there's no close second. Um, and when he was on Fox Sports 1, remember, he beat Kimbo versus Shamrock on Fox Sports 1 fighting Dennis Seaver, at least with the peak. I think the average might have been higher too, but whatever. The point being was he exceeded $3 million. I remember looking at our traffic and being shocked. I was like, for a Fox Sports 1 show, this is very good traffic. So much, much, much higher than the average for those mediums. So what does that mean for pay-per-view? I don't know because I haven't seen how his web traffic aligns with being put behind a, pay, uh, you know, a, a, a paywall, basically. Sometimes there's a direct correlation with traffic when you see a high – you know, amount of interest and your, and your traffic's blowing up, um, you can sometimes infer that this is going to be a lot of pay-per-view buys. Um, sometimes it can be a little bit less and you get higher buys. That's been the case with Rousey. You'd be, su- be surprised that um, she does great traffic, but it's not like – it's she does very good traffic. Don't get me wrong. But the numbers on the pay-per-view end sometimes outstrip what you would expect given the, the numbers. But, for example, Cormier Jones was, like, huge for us. And did very, very good pay-per-view, but not, I thought it was going to do a million after that. I saw the traffic. I was like, holy Jesus. But it, you get the idea. We don't know how it matches up with Connor yet. We just don't know. So you have to kind of wait and see. I've said I'm going to, I think 700,000 seems very optimistic for me. You know, now that you've lost Aldo. So I think 400 is probably, anything less than 400, I'd be a little bit disappointed. Um, anything higher than... Six, I think, is gravy. If you get 500,000, very good. To me, that'd be a very good number, especially considering this is your B side, basically, right? Or plan B, anyway. Um, So we'll see. We'll see. I know McGregor draws great online interest. Other thing to consider is, um, you know, when you fight on pay-per-view, sometimes your traffic, not for everyone, Sometimes the traffic is higher because some people don't purchase the pay-per-view, so they want to watch the online results. Boom. Uh, the numbers go the numbers go pretty big. Um, 
sometimes you have a big fight, but it's on free TV. Numbers aren't necessarily that great because everyone's just already watching it. Or sometimes you get big numbers on free TV too. Like you have to just kind of know how the matchup works, whether people know who they are, what channel it's on, what time it's on, um, what it's you know what the selling point is to the average consumer, and then once you factor in all things together, you can kind of get an idea about what the traffic would be like. Look, if it clears seven hundred thousand, and I'm not saying it won't. Hear me out, what I'm saying here. I'm not saying it won't, but if it does, to me that would be a home run, not just because of that number, and that number would be so tremendous, but because of um, how the UFC's had to deal with this being the second option for them. I mean, notice like whenever they lose a main event of the kind they were expecting, so they were expecting you know, Jones versus Johnson. I don't know what that would have done, but it probably would have beaten Cormier versus Johnson. So I think the same thing here, like McGregor Aldo would have been huge. You lose Aldo, you got McGregor versus Mendez. That's still big. But from a pay-per-view standpoint, this late in the game, not clear exactly what you're getting. I truly believe that unless the worst case scenario happens and Connor is TKO'd by Mendez, that Connor can be set up against Aldo even with a loss against Mendez. Nick Diaz fought GSP coming off of a loss because of his star power. Am I crazy in thinking that this is what the UFC is hoping for besides a Connor win? That to me seems very unlikely. Very unlikely. Um, I hear what you're saying about Diaz and GSP, and then, you know, Diaz eventually gets, you know, um, a fight with Silva and everything else. Um, I find that unlikely. I think if you have a loss here, unless it's very controversial, and I mean very controversial, um, like, a, like a highway robbery of a decision or, um, you know, some terrible act of a referee interfering with things or something that there's no way they'll put up Aldo against McGregor if McGregor loses. Because here's what's so special about 189, which I I, I really respect the UFC for doing this. And I mean, I mean this. The reason why I had tweeted it and you saw Lorenzo Fertitta cite it, I, I, I would be shocked if they put up Mendez, is because what happens with McGregor on Saturday? Here's one thing that never changed, that never changed. When he was fighting Aldo... It wasn't the complete referendum on McGregor, but it was a big referendum. Can you beat a legitimate, no-bull-ass, A-class, world-level fighter? Can you do that? Right? We're going to find out. Losing Aldo and then substituting Mendez, it changes the questions about McGregor, but the overarching question is still there. Can you beat a world-class, no-bull-ass, A-level fighter? Can you do it? Basic question. Can you do it? And that's what this is about. The momentum in that sense never changed. Saturday is the Conor McGregor referendum. That is what that is. It's, a, it's not the complete referendum. It's not the once and final referendum, but it's a big one. It's a very big one. And so in the event of a loss, a, you know, maybe it's a close fight, but, you know, okay, Mendez won. Or, you know, okay, I won't talk about TKO or stoppage. Let's just say, let's say Mendez wrestles him for five rounds. You may not like it, but by the rules, pretty clear. And maybe he does some damage and takes his back and stuff. I'm just making the scenario up, okay? Um, that's a referendum on McGregor. 
that's what it is. You know, not saying it's not one he can't come back from. Not saying it's one that defines the rest of his career. Just saying that's not the kind of thing you can build off of for McGregor. Moreover, Diaz is much closer to the end of his career. They need a big fight for St. Pierre, who I think was it was shown didn't have a ton of different opportunities for him or different, you know, uh, not a lot of not a lot of obvious rivals. I think some people erroneously thought that Diaz would be a great style matchup for him. So there's a lot of different factors going into the Diaz thing. Diaz had put himself on a path of like this super fight guy who was a Ronin in some ways. And McGregor has talked about weight class changes, but he is keenly focused on title talk and being a part of that contendership queue. And credit to the UFC, man, because they lost one guy, but they put in the very other guy. And I guess Edgar would have been that guy to an extent too. They put in the very guy who still keeps that overarching macro question, can you beat a no-bull-ass world-class A-level fighter? Can you do it? We're going to find out. We are going to find out. And if we get the answer that, uh, you know, McGregor wants, then, you know, oh, my God, look out, because he's going to be unstoppable after that. But uh, if he loses, you know, again, depending on how he loses, then I think he has to fight his way back through the queue. Connor Supercamp at the Tough Gym. Luke, I've been reading a lot about Connor Supercamp in the mansion leading up to this fight. This is an odd question, but do you know how much they are spending to rent out the Tough Gym? Or do you think Uncle Frank is basically giving them full access to the gym at night for free? I don't know about the gym. Um, I haven't heard about that. I did have a little birdie tell me what they knew, they knew McGregor was paying monthly to rent out that mansion. Let me just say, since I can't verify it, I'm a little hesitant to say the exact number, but let me just say that it's a very good source. Um, it's a down payment on a nice home that he is spending every month in rent for that place. A down payment on a very nice home. So <laughs> do the math. Uh, you know, that's the only thing I'm worried about McGregor. If I'm, if I'm worried about him at all, I think he's got incredible mental focus. I think he is such a student of the game. I think he's just a natural showman. He's just perfect for the game. But boy, the financial management issues, he seems to love spending money. Um, we all do, don't we? I don't think he's any different than most young men. But, but, oof, I'm a little bit worried about that if I'm just being honest. Maybe I'm wrong. Hope to God I'm wrong. Just saying. All right, UFC 190 main card. What do you think? You got Rousey Cohea, cool. Shogun versus Hogerio, the rematch. That's cool. Uh, Franca versus Bruno from Tough Four. I don't care. Delina Lopez versus uh, Hedginaldo Vieira. Cool. It's fine. Strew versus Big Nog. Um, that's fine, I guess. Bigfoot versus Sopaleli. Don't really care. I mean, I'm not saying I don't care. I'm trying to be dismissive, but it doesn't particularly interest me. Uh, Claudio Gadelia versus Jessica Aguilar. That, to me, is like the most interesting fight on the card. I mean, obviously, Rousey's the big star. You want to see what's left of Shogun and, and Stefan Struve, you know, trying to get back to his career. But um, Gadelia getting back on the horse, having Jessica Aguilar come over from World Series of Fighting, seeing where she's actually at. The winner of this probably gets the next title shot against um, young Jacek. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. All 
True, false. John Jones fights in 2015. I thought true. I'm going to... I thought he'd be back sooner than he is. So I will amend that and say... We still have some time. I'm going to amend that and say false. Gabriel Melendez fights again in the UFC. That'll be true. A champion will be caught cheating in 2015. A champion will be caught cheating. Um... I'll say false. Conor McGregor is a bigger star than Ronda Rousey. Not in the United States. Maybe in Ireland. All right, look, I got a what-if question for you. What if McGregor wins on Saturday in rounds one or two after Mendez attempts only one or two takedowns? Say these takedowns weren't blast double legs, but were single legs pressing McGregor against the cage and were stuffed. Would this be enough to answer the wrestler question? Or what if McGregor wins without Mendez attempting a takedown of any kind? Man, such a good question. Thought about this myself. Okay. Here's what I'm a little bit worried about because <laughs> this is such a good question. I, I, I have struggled with this one as well. I, I am a little bit, first of all, I'm a little bit lightheaded because I'm in the third floor of my house and it's like the surface of the sun in here. Here we go. Um, How did Chad Mendez beat Lamas? He blasted him out, right? I was at the Fairfax card. I saw it myself. Uh, his hands are phenomenal. And you saw him give it to Jose Aldo with his hands, too, a lot. Um, this would be very problematic for me. Because stuffing takedowns early is a very different task than stuffing takedowns late. Ask anyone who's fought Demi and Maya. Uh, some people succumb to them early and often, but you know, in other words, there's something to be said for a guy who just will not stop attacking you with takedowns, who was trying trips, inside trips, outside trips, body lock throws, singles, doubles, single, single leg sweeps, you know, low singles, hot ankle picks. Like he's just going after you, after you, after you, after you, eventually you see, you find a guy like that, man, and it will it will break you. It will break you mentally. It, it just is so so hard to deal with guys like that. Um, and you see a couple of them. If if Chad Mendez wants to be that guy, he can be. Okay, we should make that point. But to your point, what if Mendez goes in there and decides to strike it out with him? Because hey, you know, listen, Conor McGregor gets hit in all his fights. Like you can say whatever else you want about him, you can think he's going to win. You can think he's going to win handily. Go back and watch the Poirier fight; he gets tagged. Go back to watch the Brando fight; he gets tagged. He gets tagged in all of his fights. Um, not enough to make it count, but they hit him. But Mendez is a different guy. What if Mendez goes in there, has a little bit of early success from the short range? McGregor, McGregor can't quite find it, and and then all of a sudden the tables just turn. And then you say, well, he beat Chad Mendez. And you're like, yeah, he did. But did that really answer the question? I don't know. Or to your point, what if it's only, let's say he attempts five takedowns over the course of two rounds and gets four of them. But the fifth one, McGregor stops, backs up, pops him with an uppercut, and, and, and Mendez goes down. Then what do you say? You know, I would say at that point you have enough evidence to determine that if it's the scenario I just posited, four takedowns. Oh, let me try something real quick. Yeah, if it's that scenario, what I would say is you have enough evidence to conclude that his takedown defense is permeable, but not crippling for his chances. 
In other words, if the fifth time he stuffs it or he gets right back up immediately and then can crack you, bang, right away, and you're in trouble, you, it's, it is fair to say at that point that his takedown defense may not be great, but it can be good enough to win. And that sort of basically answers it. If it's something nebulous because Mendez wants to strike with him, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. But then you have to ask yourself, is Mendez going out there and wrestling him for five rounds on a short camp? Is that the best idea? Like, you got to strike with him a little bit, don't you? How much? How much before you're just sort of fighting his fight at that point? It's a tough question for Chad Mendes to answer. Now, if he's in tremendous shape because the camps went out that big a deal, uh, okay, then he can just go and wrestle him for five rounds. And, you know, obviously he's going to have the ability to wrestle because it comes natural to him. But uh, th- there needs to be room for the idea that you raise that the fight can go in Connor's favor and we may not get a clear answer to whether or not he has the kind of issue to deal with wrestling because of the way in which Mendez is either hampered from a from a shorter camp or just fought in a way that wasn't particularly smart. But, you know, if he can if he can survive takedowns and then eventually stuff a couple and use that to blind someone after the fact, you know, you would say, okay, he's got enough to work with. You know? And against Aldo, that won't even really matter. Yeah, man. I like how much uh, – I know how much you like Ellenberger versus Thompson, which is going down this Sunday. Could you break it down? First of all, both guys are incredibly nice guys. I just want to point that out. Like, you ever interview both, it's kind of a treat because they're awesome dudes. Let me just say that up front. Second of all, love this fight. I really feel like uh, Ellenberger salvaged things more recently, so he's looked better. He did not look good against Gastelum, but has since recovered. Uh, and Thompson, I feel like he's turning a corner a little bit. This, to me, is really going to be about – Ellenberger's takedown defense, you know, um, excuse me, takedown ability. What am I saying? It's going to be about Thompson's takedown defense because if Ellenberger tries to fight him at range, you know, I just have a hard time seeing how it goes well. But Ellenberger having a bit of wrestling ability, to what extent will that neutralize the kicking already, or at least not neutralize, but certainly limit the kicking opportunities that Thompson is looking for? Um, to me, it's going to be about whether Thompson can maintain distance. It's a bigger cage since it's a pay-per-view. So that works to his benefit. Um, and then getting his back off the fence, circling, and then pot-shotting him, mixing in his hands as much as possible. Um, being overly reliant on his feet could be problematic. But if he could stay moving and catch Ellenberger uh, trying to you know come in straight or not setting up his, his entries, um, he's going to chew Ellenberger up to pieces. By contrast, if Ellenberger can, you know, can get Thompson reacting, get a hold of him back into the cage, and then scoop him out. Um, you know he's got thunderous, thunderous power. So we'll see. How devastated is the UFC brass if Connor loses? More importantly, how do they rebuild him? Assume a five-round wrestle hump, for instance. Uh, I don't think a loss if it's a five-round wrestle hump. Uh, is going to be that problematic for him because it would make him look bad temporarily, right? Like, see, told you, just couldn't deal with wrestlers, right? Just couldn't, just couldn't deal with it. Um, okay, true, but um, people are still going to want to see him. He's still going to have a big mouth, and what he's going to do is he's going to say, "I'm going to go and get the best wrestling training imaginable, and I'm going to come back and I'm going to show you." And then they could match him up with, with a guy who's got like Sieber-esque wrestling ability which he's already shown he can beat, do it again, 
and you can say, okay, like he really went back to the, you know, the, to the drawing board here and, and fix the problem that we now know he had or has that that's a sellable thing. You know, the only time that people really buy into, you know, these, these like identity crises, like, well, you know, as a striker without much wrestling is when it's a sustained problem. Right. So what we're trying to figure out now is did UFC cover for him with their matchmaking? Um, because he, this is just something he just can't get good at. Or did they cover for him with their matchmaking? Because they did, you know, I mean, they didn't give him the top guys right away. They are now, but you know, it was supposed to be Siva the Aldo. I mean, there's, there's guys in between you're skipping there, but did they do that? And this is my hunch. Did they do that to give him enough time to get better at it? That I think is what actually happened. What I actually think happened was I think UFC brass was like, okay, we got this guy who is just a phenomenal, could be phenomenal for us in every capacity, you know, as a as a European uh, champion for us, if he can get that far. Um, he's got a huge mouth. He can be a big star. He can sell. He's like, you know, MMA's Prince Hasim Ahmed. But he can't really wrestle that great. Uh, he's not terrible at it, but he's not good at it. Here's what we can do. Let's get him fights along the way that... You know, these are credible guys because Max Holloway is a credible guy. Dennis Heaver, whatever else you think of him, is a credible guy. Certainly Dustin Poirier is a credible guy, right? Uh, and Brimage is a fine first fight. You know, who else did he fight? Um, I can't remember now. Oh, uh, Brandau. Um, let's get him the fights in succession where um, he can, during these camps and over time, he'll just get better at wrestling. So that by the time he absolutely can no longer avoid answering the question, can you wrestle, can you not wrestle, he'll have developed enough ability where he can then say, yes, I can wrestle. Right? You just delay, 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 and while you're delaying, you're getting better at this, and then you're eventually forced to answer, and now you can. I think that's, to me, what's going on. Because if you look at McGregor's makeup, he's got all the right guys around him, for the most part, I think. He's, he, you know, I talk about his mental focus. Like, it, you, you can't really sleep on it and you can't discount it. The guy just has tremendous, not just self belief, but he likes to watch. You know, he, if you watch the last embedded, he was saying he likes to train on an empty stomach because it takes you places. You know, this is a guy who, um, on the one hand, likes to conquer all of these base urges, like, or, or base instincts or emotions like fear and hunger and want. And likes to overcome them to go into some sort of like zen out, peaceful slash ready state. Kind of an amazing thing that I think people sleep on. His his ability to control his mind is is rather impressive. Um, so there's that. Uh, I don't know. I forgot where I was going with this. I just sort of wandered into Conor McGregor territory. Oh, here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. So I, I am, I am, a, and then you see, you see him physically. How everything has gotten better on the other parts of his game that he was already kind of good at. You know, uh, he, we know he has big power, and he can strike, and he can box, and he has got great uppercuts, and he's got great combinations, and him, you know, a, a good manager of distance. You sort of take all those things together, and you could say, like Anderson Silva, is his wrestling great? No, but over time, his ability to stuff guys against the cage has gotten pretty good. You know, he stuffed Wyman a couple of times, so. That's where I think the issue is. But even if you can wrestle now, can you wrestle enough to beat a guy like Mendez? I don't know. We're going to find out.
Uh, which fighters can you think of in terms of going up a weight class, and whom do you think will most likely be affected by the IV hydration ban? Boy, Henan Burrell has to be first on that list, huh? Gastelum. Um, BJ Penn and the IV Wimps. I'm glad you asked this. BJ Penn has recently said that he supports the UFC USADA uh, hydration ban and says that IVs are for wimps. What is your opinion of this? Okay, certainly uh, y'all know how I feel about BJ Penn. I think he's just one of the most amazing guys ever. Love him. Have almost nothing negative to say about him. You know, no one's perfect, so that's about the only negative thing I'll ever say about BJ Penn. But I would just respectfully and profoundly disagree with him here. There's a couple issues with this with this ban. Number one, some guys do it. Maybe they don't need to do it, but they can do it. Number two, there's actually no proof that this is an unsafe practice. Right? Show me the guys who have had issues using IVs and rehydration, and they got botched somewhere, and they bled out, or they got in an arm infection, or the you know something like that. Right? That it's it's a fairly innocuous practice. Um. There's just not a lot of evidence to say it's dangerous in any capacity whatsoever. Now, the cut itself might be that you're using the thing for, but the act of rehydrating via an IV is fairly straightforward. It's done across other sports. It's not a big deal. It's just not. Now, if you're talking about guys trying to get every advantage to get cuts and then put themselves in dangerous positions, that's true too. But I've talked about it before. How did NCAA get around this in the 90s when they had like three wrestlers die in a season? The way they got around it was um, – a number of things about making people stick to a weight class and then measuring their body fat and hydration composition, but then doing it constantly, right? Constantly monitoring how well you are hydrated constantly all the time so that you never fluctuate. We don't have that mechanism in place. There's no one who's able to monitor you, Mr. Prize fighter down at American top team, whoever you are, for example, to make sure that you're properly week in, week out, staying hydrated. There's just, it doesn't exist. Uh, and so that to me is the issue about like, well, we're going to ban, you know, this. And so guys will move up weight classes. Will they, or will they just take more risks? Some might move up and some will take more risks. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. So uh, I'm not saying it's the end of the world that you ban IVs. I don't think, I don't think the sport's going to collapse or anything crazy like that. But I do think that, um, um, you know, if guys feel good results from things and why wouldn't an IV work, uh, they're going to keep doing it. But I know plenty of guys who are just absolutely not wimps who have used it because it's an effective way to rehydrate. You know, this idea that, you know, this is some sort of like, look, BJ Penn likes to put, even put the hashtag hot beer and hot dogs, you know, and that's cool, man. I love BJ for that. But um, rehydration via IV, it works. And that's why they do it. And so you're taking away something that works because you think that doing that will change the way people weight cut. Maybe. Here's the other part about the weight cut thing that I that I object to. Uh, if there were a UFC FA, UFC Fighters Association, right? Like NFL PA or NBA PA, whatever. Um, if there was a UFC FA, they would never allow this. In other words, they would never allow in any collective bargaining agreement the IV to be taken away. Never. It would never happen. So, you know, some fighters I, uh, some fighters are like, oh, yeah, like uh, Demetrius Johnson's like, I've never used an IV. Okay, that's cool, man. I'm glad you haven't. That means, you you know, you do things the right and responsible way. That's awesome. But not everyone thinks like you. Not everyone uh, may more naturally fit into the right weight class like you. 
Um, not everyone may think that they can do as well without it. Um, there's all kinds of reasons why you would want to use an IV in a safe way that's not in any way controversial. And I think the other thing that folks aren't considering here is it's like every time management does something, fighters are just like, well, I can live with it because look how tough I am. Right? They take away your likeness rights. That's all right, man. Look at me. I'm in a video game. I don't need to get paid for it. Okay. All right. You know, here, wear these uniforms. That's cool, man. Yeah, I'm losing out on some sponsorship money, but, uh, you know, I'm down for the cost. All right. Cool, man. You know, oh, uh, no more uh, using this for weight cutting. Doesn't bother me anyway. You know, I can do whatever. It's like, it's like, at what point do you say, okay, no, you don't get this kind of control over me. We are a partnership here, and we have some say over how we treat our own bodies after an intense weight cutting scenario. By the way, you know, it's not, I think the UFC certainly doesn't want to force people like Kelvin Gastelum into weight classes they can't go to. But, um, you know, I never heard the IV bag issue being a problem up until USADA got involved, right? And I understand why they are against it. I get their argument for it. I'm not killing them for it. They have a certain view of how sports should be regulated, and that's fine. But, you know, up until this became a big deal, did UFC management ever complain about guys weight cutting and then rehydrating through IVs? Never heard a word. Because they know it's not a big deal. <laughs> they know it. They know it's not a big deal. Um in terms of it being a safe practice. So, so that's my thought about it is like, um, you know, I don't see why you can't do this at a station that USADA sets up post fight that you just go there. If you want to rehydrate, you can hydrate under our supervision. It only takes about an hour or two to do sit there, play on your Instagram game boy, whatever. You can see how out of touch I am with both those things. Um, but this idea that like, you know, oh, it's, you know, it's just another form of cheating. It's like, dude, there's so many different things that guys use to get an advantage to make the list. Rehydrating via an IV to me seems like such a non-issue, such a non-issue. And taking away things guys use after these cuts that they have been taking and up to here for maybe some making successfully. Like, I bet, I don't know, I bet Lisa Tebow uses an IV bag. I bet, you know, does that guy have a weight cut issue? In terms of like not making it and effing up fights, no. So what's the what, why can't he keep doing it? I'm, I'm you know assuming he does right. Why can't he keep doing it? Uh, what will John Jones wear? Did anyone ask Dana Lorenzo last week what Jones will wear upon his return? He will wear. Someone wrote an orange jumpsuit. That's cold, man. He will wear Reebok like everyone else. He just won't get a Reebok sponsorship. Connor's obligations too many. Chell says Connor's obligations have become too much and it could affect his fight. Uh, what is your take? Talk about how he is changing the way fighters may promote themselves in the future. Well, you know, yeah, like you're flying across country in the middle of your camp. You remember Nick Diaz doesn't like flying because he was like, he doesn't like the poisonous water that's in his body after flying and he feels there's a certain level of toxicity. And, you know, you got this guy flying different time zones, you know, unsure workout facilities, um, sleeping in hotel rooms you know, um, and then having to get up early and go and talk forever, like your day routine is messed up. It's tough, man. Conor McGregor deserves a lot of credit for doing that. That is a very, very, very difficult thing that got, I told you about before, you know, you see a guy like Conor McGregor out there doing all this media stuff because he knows that, that you know, it's a big, it's a, it's important for him to do. Okay. But you know, you see these other fighters like, they don't want to do any of that stuff. They don't want to have to talk to media. They don't have to worry about what they have to eat. They just want to train and have everyone else around them do things for them. It's a very selfish endeavor in that way.
Um, so yeah, do I think it's too many? You know, without having been there, I don't know. But if Chael Sonnen, a guy who loves to do media science a lot, I bet it's a lot. I bet it's a lot. You know, he's going all over the place to do stuff from LA and and New York and Connecticut and oh, what a mess, man! I feel bad for him in that in that way. Um, let's see. Let's say BJ Penn won that close split decision against Frankie Edgar at UFC 112. I was thinking about that this morning. What do you think the rest of his career would have looked like? I think he still would have had a moment where he dropped off, right? Uh, let me pull up his resume real quick. Because it was that was that was basically the turning point. Um let's see. Right. So, okay. So he won. He beat Jens Pulver. Right. He beat Joe Stevenson. He beat Sean Shirk. Goes to 170. Loses. Goes back down to 155. Beats Kenny Florian. Beats Diego Sanchez. And then fights Frankie Edgar. Okay. If he beats Frankie Edgar there, um, I still think he would have fallen off a little bit because he didn't look the same at UFC 118. Even when he fought Matt Hughes, that was a very diminished Matt Hughes. Um, he did look okay against John Fitch early, but as we know, faded. And then was never the same after that. Like, there was a natural arc anyway. But I think what you could have said is, um, for example, they were talking about this on the Co-Main Event podcast. Shouts to those guys. They were saying, you know, is BJ Penn the greatest lightweight of all time? And my response would be yes, but... Chad Dundas was arguing, well, you know, is there is there a greatest lightweight of all time? You know, is much like there's some debate about what, like who's the best heavyweight of all time. Um, I think that, you know, I still think BJ is that guy. But I would say that if there's some dispute about it, had he beaten Edgar, even if he had fallen off after that point, you still could go back and then say, okay, with the Edgar, Sanchez, Florian, Shirk, Stevenson, Pulver run, that's probably the greatest run in UFC lightweight history, right? Because certainly Henderson has some wins, many of them controversial, many of them. Both Edgar fights, Thompson fight, uh, Melendez fight, you know, those to me are, you know, not nearly that clear. Certainly a uh, Edgar Penn for one was controversial, but the Sanchez, the Florian, the Shirk, the Stevenson, the Pulver fight, ain't nothing controversial about that. So, so I don't know. I don't know exactly what would happen. My sense is he still would have had a natural aging drop-off motivation thing. But, uh, or, you know, maybe maybe Henderson would have beat him after that point. Who knows? Or Edgar, or I don't know. But um, but that would have shored up any doubters about who is the greatest lightweight of all time. Main event backups. I like the idea of a lot of the UFC announcing Excuse me. I like the idea a lot of the UFC announcing Chad as a replacement before Aldo was officially out. Do you think it would be worth it for them to offer contenders money just to stay in shape and be ready as a backup for high-anticipated fights? It's actually uh, something they've been doing routinely. This happens all the time. This is the only time that they've sort of like made it very, very public and a forward, you know, component to the narrative of this uh, of a major fight. But it's happened many, many times in the past. It's not new at all. Uh, Costa Phillip, who retires. What were the high points of his career? Shout-outs to Cyprus. Um, I'm not sure he has a ton of career high marks. 
in terms of the kind that fans normally identify with. Certainly, he was a tremendous athlete. Yeah, I guess the Tim Boach win. I don't know. Or maybe the Lorenz Larkin win. I'm not exactly sure. But, you know, making it to the UFC and being an interesting featherweight. and But, you know, after he left the, the Cerro Longo camp and, I don't know, whatever momentum he was building after the Fukuda and Boach wins, everything just sort of went away after that. Especially after the Rockhold loss. Someone says dropping Jared Hammond three times comes to mind. Yeah, for sure. Someone says my high point for Costa is knocking out the monsoon cold. Sure. Um, but, you know, folks don't realize that Philip, who was like almost 36, I'm sure he was just like, you know what? I'm just going to go do something else. Robbie Lawler versus Rory McDonald. Could this be the least promoted welterweight title fight in history? Okay. Yes and no. It certainly is, you know, it's, I mean, I can't remember a welterweight fight that was promoted this little in my lifetime since watching, since watching MMA for the UFC anyway. Um, one second. But, uh, Here's what I would say. On the one hand, they're not directly promoting this fight. Okay. On the other hand, they are promoting the the main event and by proxy the event itself so much that, in a sense, Lawler and McDonald will will like. What are you What are you looking for when you promote a fight? You're when you promote a fight, you're looking to get maximum attention and interest in the matchup itself, the individual fighters. So do you get that by actually promoting the fight? It's sort of a curious thing. You actually get more eyeballs on the fight, I feel like, in Lawler McDonald, not by ignoring it exactly, but by focusing the lion's share of your attention on the thing people are already concerned about. Right? It's a weird case of promoting by not promoting. Because people are like, oh, they're not making any notice about Lawler and McDonald. Well, I don't think that's so true. I think what they want is they want people to watch the fight. Of course, they you know you want to be able to build off these guys, and especially if McDonald wins, you want to you know the UFC needs to go back to Canada in a, in a big in a big time way. Having someone like Rory McDonald as your welterweight champion that doesn't hurt at all. They, they they want a positive outcome for this, you know, and not say McDonald necessarily, but you know um, um, something they can use to build off of a dominant champ and or, or you know whatever the case may be. Um, but what's the best way to get there? If you were just intently focused on Lawler versus McDonald, I'm not saying it would hurt. But would you get the same amount of people if you did like you know what they're doing now, which is like ten percent Lawler McDonald and then ninety percent main event? I don't think you would. I think you get more people doing it the other way. So it's a case of like less being a lot more. That's what I think. So you know, it's it's just weird to see a fight not get people talking about it over and over and over again. Okay, that's true. But if we're talking about attention for people um, in this particular case and for the event generally, you can't ignore it. And I don't think they've totally ignored it but they've just put the interest where it is to have a real trickle-down, you know, cover-all effect. Will we see Cyborg versus Rousey? Has the new IV ban placed a bigger gap between Ronda and Cyborg? We know there will be no catch weight in the foreseeable future, and Ronda Rousey won't be moving up anytime soon. So... 
How will Cyborg lose that weight? Good question. I have no idea. I have no earthly idea. Uh, let's go to the Twitter machine. Let's see. God damn it. Twitter machine. Um, all right. Is there an early pick for the Giblert Melendez Award this week? Well, someone suggested that we just do it as the Giblert Award. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the Giblert Award goes to Gilbert Melendez, right? I mean, seems like a pretty straightforward thing to do. All right. So it says, how about being punctual for once? Yeah, but that would then ruin the routine. I'm on my, you know, Cal Ripken-like record here of always being late. I'm asking you about a union for the 50th time. Give your take on the notion that the UFC is give or take two or three canceled pay-per-view shows away from bankruptcy. I don't think that's the case. Did you wish Ariel a happy birthday today? I did. Do you think Sinead O'Connor will have to wear Reebok gear when she performs at UFC 189? No, but I am told that everyone on the production side of the shows will have to from now on, even people in uh, like not, not visible roles in production, like everyone backstage. If Aldo was as tough as the U.S. national women's team, would he have fought at UFC 189? Um, he seems to me a hell of a lot tougher. There was this stupid ass thing going around where it showed this like female soccer player. I don't know who she was from another country. Bloody nose and like she spits out a bunch of blood and keeps going. First of all, you're gonna, like no one's going to allow her to be on the field doing that. Like you're going to take her off. Secondly, then they showed like Ronaldo flopping. Like and they're like, you know, who's the tougher of the two? It's like. Could there be a dumber point? Like, you can name a thousand soccer dudes, pros, who would be very, very tough in any kind of horrible circumstance. Some countries view flopping as a clever part and art of the game. They don't view it as, like, a scourge, like Americans or I think the Brits view it as, as well. They view it as a clever way to manipulate the game. So, like, the idea of flopping isn't some sort of, like, character weakness. And moreover, are we really going to say that, like, um, the male athletes who compete professionally in soccer at the highest level aren't tough, you know, or are, are you know, are the women who do it at the highest level are in some ways demonstrably more tough. They're all about the same level of tough, give or take, right? And this that's meme floating around like, oh, look at this, like look, look how tough this woman is. Why do you have to demean high level male pros to make a semi feminist point about female pros? Like the way to do it is just to sort of be like. Like one does not have to be true at the expense of the other, and that works both ways, right? All those pros are all pretty tough. You don't make a point through like dumbass, clever editing about how women being tough by putting down men. That doesn't prove anything. Women are tough on their own, irrespective of what men do or don't. Anyway. Someone says, you promised to not say flopping anymore. Damn you, it's diving. Yeah, in your little tiny area of the world. But in Los Estados Unidos, it's not. 
Um, what do you think about Aldana versus Evinger and Victor 13 skill wise? Uh, what do you see happening? I think this is going to be, first of all, it's not Irene, it's Irene Aldana. Um, I think she's going to have her coming out party. I think she's going to have her coming out party for this one. Evinger's a beast. Uh, Evinger is, um, can wrestle her ass off. And I think I, uh, Aldana's going to have some issues with that, but eventually is going to have her way. And I like Aldana's guard. I like Aldana scrambling and she's got ridiculous pop. So, um, love it. Love it a lot. Let me look up that card if I can real quick. That Invicta card is sneaking up on you, right? It's on Thursday, man. For some reason, I thought it was going to be on Friday. Um, but I guess not. Yeah. Irene Aldana versus Tanya Evinger. It's a sick fight. Uh, Erica Terbisio versus uh, Ayaka Hamasaki. That should be good. Uh, what else do I like on this card? Montenegro versus Moyle I like. Marina Shafir's on it. She's making her Invicta debut. And then, of course, Cyborg in the main event. So, uh, yeah, should be a good one. Should be a fun one. Fight pass. The whole bit. BJ Penn Bellator. All right, I'll answer this question. With people like Ariel Hawani speculating that BJ Penn retired before he truly wanted to, could you see Bellator throwing enough money at him to coax him back into fighting? Well, I think Ariel's right that, you know, there's obviously still some issues with BJ about leaving the game in, in a way he didn't want to and not accomplishing everything he wanted to. But um, I don't think he finished his contract. Like, he didn't fight out his contract. I think he has a couple of fights left on it. So there's no such thing as going to Bellator. Remember what Koscheck said? You got to fight out your contract. Damn, dude, it has rained every day here. It's raining again. It's crazy. $3 million bet between Connor and the UFC. What do you make of that story that Connor wanted to bet $3 million on himself with the UFC? I think my man's got some money issues. He bets money like. Like, Mayweather has more money than any UFC fighter will probably ever have. Probably. Um, and even he doesn't bet like that. <laughs> it's like, you're making more, you're making bets with higher, you know, dollar amounts than the richest guy in professional sports does. Not sure that's the best idea. Say Connor stops both Chad and Jose in the upcoming months. I can see people begin to call him the greatest featherweight in history. Would there be any validity to this claim if it were to happen? No. At least not right away. Stopping Mendez would be incredible. Stopping Aldo would be incredible. But it's more than that. It's sustained dominance over the division. Um, it would require, you know, like Aldo's run over the division has been for years. It would take more than that. And you could say, well, he beat Aldo. Yeah, but Aldo's a lot older now. Not saying he's out of his prime necessarily, but um, it would be an incredible thing. It would certainly set him up to be one of the best stars in UFC and one of the best fighters. But it's about showing up and winning. Showing up and winning. I, I talk about this all the time. I interviewed Matt Brown before he fought Stephen Thompson. I think that was Stephen Thompson's, I don't know if that was his UFC debut, but it was like one of the more high-profile fights he had. And Matt Brown's point to me was like, you know, I don't know how good he is, but I can tell you something that I kind of admire about him. And I said, okay, well, what is that? And he said, you know, this guy's kickboxing record is like what, like 65 and 0 or something? He goes, think about that. I mean, 65 times he didn't just show up and won, but he showed up when he felt sick, 
probably, and when he was tired, and when he was injured, and when something was going wrong in his life, and he still went out there, and he still won. So, like, is he fighting all the best guys all 65 times? You know, maybe not. But the point being was that sustained ability to have success, that was what really stood him apart. Same thing for Anderson Silva, you know, when he had that that amazing run that he was on. It was sustained dominance because he fought, you know, Travis Luter with banged-up knees, and he fought Sonnen with a banged-up rib, and he still went out there, and he still won. He still won, you know. Someone says, it is safe to say that the UFC lives off very recognizable names like Dana White, Joe Rogan, Mike Goldberg, Bruce Buffer, fighters like Jones, Silva, GSP, Machida, Bisping. Ten years from now, a lot of these personalities from the older era of the UFC won't be there anymore. And with the exception of McGregor, I don't see any of these new characters coming up that will carry the torch. Do you think this can create a problem in the future if there aren't the right people in place that can give the UFC the promotion that has made it successful so far? P.S. Can you unblock me from Twitter? Um, yeah, just email me your, your name. Um, good question. I wrote a post about this years ago. I want to find it because I want credit for it. But I remember looking it up, and I was like, man, there's a bunch of dudes who are about to exit the game. And some took longer than others. But, you know, go back to my interview with Scott Coker that I did at uh, Bellator 138. And he was saying, you know, my son doesn't watch MMA anymore because the guys who he watched and fell in love with, um, they moved on. You know, Liddell is gone. Couture is gone. Griffin's gone. Bonner's gone. Um, you know, Penn's gone. Hughes is gone. All those guys are gone, man. They're gone. So, again, some left earlier than others, but um, you get the idea. And I think there was a downs- downswing that he talked about in the interview, which I agree with, that you know, it's hard to hand off new stars to a new generation of fight fans or the same, the, the existing generation of fight fans. It doesn't work that way. It's very, it's a very, very difficult thing. So um, every time that the current crop of stars dies out, you want to have the next ones waiting in the wings. That's been a very, very difficult thing for UFC to do. I feel like we're in a newer stage now where virtually all the stars of the, of the, of the hot era are gone. Silva's almost gone. Penn's gone. Um, you know, there's not, there's, Tito's almost gone. Um, I go, I guess Ken Shamrock's still out there doing this thing, but you get the idea. They're mostly gone. And so you have this new era of Rousey's and Jones's and McGregor's GSP's almost gone. If he's not, if he's not unofficially gone already, um, you know, I worry is every time we have to send off a new generation, um, do we lose that same generation of fight fans who became attached to them? You know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there, but that was, that was, I think a major reason you know, I always talk about it. What, in the United States, what was the hot time in MMA, the super hot time? It was the beginning of Ultimate Fighter 1 to the end of the Brock Lesnar era. That's your that's your window for, like, when MMA was super hot here. Um, and once Brock left, everything sort of sort of changed here. But it wasn't just Brock leaving. It was that that signaled and was part of this transfer of talent, of guys retiring, of guys getting out, Um you know, or becoming lesser versions of themselves. You know, it, everyone got older or left. Quentin Jackson, another one left, you know. Luke, is Dana still missing that apology to Aldo? Or his recent comments about Aldo's video getting kicked, sent by his coach, and the, are, are the apology... I don't know what you're talking about. 
I didn't see that comment by Dana, so I don't know what you're talking about. Um, this one, I'm going to wreck it because it's a good question. How do you think the UFC will promote John Jones when he returns? Assuming Jones does minimal to no jail time and returns to the UFC very quickly, how do you think the UFC will handle it? Will they still try to build him as a superstar and a potential champion in two different weight classes? Probably, but I like they acknowledge. I mean, dude, how do you not acknowledge Jones's um, personal issues at this point? I mean, it's public record. It's it's not even just public record, you know. Like at this point with John Jones, it's part of his identity, right? Until he's able to turn a corner, and I mean, really turn a corner. You talk about John Jones and you say, tell me about John Jones, right? Someone says, tell me about him. What would you say? You would say, my God, look at this guy. He can do this. He can do this. He did this. He did that. He did. Yeah, you know, but here's, but here's the kicker. You know, he has this issue going on outside of his life. He had a DUI. He had a, you know, he had a pregnant lady, blah, 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 blah. All this stuff. Like the two are inextricably linked at this point. Uh, and they, and they made an overture to that um, when they, had the Cormier uh, Rumble promo run during the event itself. You know, it was like the lead into the main event. So I think they would talk quite openly about it. In fact, you know, look, we love redemption stories. I think they would sort of talk about, you know, his time away and what it meant and if he's different now and all that kind of stuff. Then he asks, what if he does two to three years of jail time? Will the UFC give up their hopes to make him a superstar because he's just too controversial and bad for their image? Or is he too viable to not make a superstar? Well, that would be such a crazy scenario. I'm not saying unlikely, but I'm saying if that happened, you would A, want to see, does he still want to fight when he gets out? B, can he still fight when he gets out in terms of like having any ability? Uh, if he does have ability, how much? You know, you would have to take that one very cautiously. But I don't think they would like write it off as a non-possible scenario. I think they would sort of say, is this something we can really work with? You know, because remember how Dana White thinks. He always says that, you know, once you've done your time, you've done your time. Um, and I, I think that would probably apply to John Jones too. If it came to that. Well, says, can you explain why Alexander Shlomenko got a three-year ban for PED use and Gilbert Melendez got a one-year ban? Um, sure. The three-year, the three-year PED ban for Shlomenko came from the California State Athletic Commission. There were a few factors that went into the, it being as high as three. They didn't have to be. Melendez is from the UFC self-policing in Mexico. So, different essential commissions, as it were, handing out punishments for, although in this particular case, both first-time offenders. Um, but I think the nature of what Shlomenko popped for, um, you know, contributed to, to what happened in California. Hunter's lifestyle. It seems that likely that Conor McGregor is being paid more money than is documented in the press. But does it concern you that he's spending it so quickly, not to mention so publicly? The McMansion, designer suits, jewelry, all broadcasted so publicly on social media. While it may help his confidence, it seems like all fighters are essentially one or two losses away from having their hype train derailed. How concerned are you that he could become another statistic? Uh, very. Because right now, he, it's, he's like super hot on fire. Everyone's like, I think he knows what he's doing. There are, there are athletes who have made multiples of what McGregor's made and blown it all. 
Did you all see Albert Hainsworth in uh in the Players Tribune? Albert Hainsworth was this. I got a lot of European listeners. I'll just say he's an American football player. What it was, and um, you know, played uh, you know um, played on the defensive line. Was like a three hundred pound guy, and got a hundred million dollar contract to come play here in DC. And when he came here, he sucked. Anyway, he admitted in a letter this week that a financial advisor he had, who is I guess now being investigated for fraud, took most of that one hundred million. Yeah. Um. That's just a small example. Like, go read Pablo Torre's old article in Sports Illustrated about how athletes lose all their money. He t- talks to, like Rocket Ismael and, and people like that. But um, someone says, someone says, I remember Connor saying that spending all of his money keeps him hungry to compete, knowing that he needs to continue to succeed. That sounds like a superstition and terrible, terrible financial management. Would any financial advisor on earth tell you to do that? Someone says, I've always had the impression that although Connor seems to bleed a lot of cash, he's more deliberate in how he spends it. Oh, I don't get that at all. You've got snakeskin, what was it, like Dolce & Gabbana shoes or whatever it was, Armani. Yeah, that's not deliberate. That That is wasteful as hell. And if you knew how much I was told he was spending to rent that mansion a month, better hope he wins. I mean, you could literally put a down payment on a new home somewhere in like a major market every time with the amount of money he's spending per month on that. A new home as a down payment, right? Um, I, I think his spending, you know, unless he's just getting crazy amount of money that we don't know about, which I don't think is true, um, his spending is a real problem. It's a real problem. Someone told me a story recently that Evan Tanner, now he wouldn't make as much as Connor, but Evan Tanner would... Uh, he would get his check after a fight and then get the bank in the casino or the casino itself to cash it and then spend all his money and then would eventually have to get cab fare to like the airport or to his home. Um, let's see. True, false. Mendez and Connor go the distance. I will say true. Dana cries at the press conference if Connor loses. I'll say false. Connor moves up to 155 with a loss. Maybe temporarily for like a fight or two, but no. Connor gets an immediate title shot whenever he decides to move up to 155. I don't think that's a crazy idea. Immediate time shot. I will say true. Lawler and McDonald put on a fight of the year war. Uh, I think it'll be a tremendous fight. I don't think it'll be fight of the year, so I'll say false. Lawler and McDonald put on a very boring fight, but insanely technical fight. I think that's also false. Nelson submits Thatch. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, if Henderson can, obviously Thatch can, but Henderson can wrestle a lot better than, excuse me, if if Henderson can do it to Thatch, then Nelson can do it to Thatch, but Henderson can wrestle better than Nelson. So I don't know. 
Uh, Pendred steals a controversial decision. I don't think this time that's going to work, but we'll see. You never did let us know what you thought of American Sniper. Uh, I thought it sucked. I thought it was, uh, and I speak to you as a Marine Corps um, veteran, I thought American Sniper was absolute ridiculous propaganda that made my stomach turn. That's what I'd say about it. And a, and a, and a moral abomination is what that movie is. Uh, okay. You never, oh yeah, here we go. Fighter popularity, Luke, based on the following metrics... One of these long ass questions. Has anyone heard Chob S all over Reebok on his podcast? Would not be surprised to hear that he came back to bite him in the ass. He said of the following If you support me, don't buy Reebok gear with my name on it. F Reebok, Reebok sucks. Uh, I mean, I don't so what's so controversial about that? Look. I think it's fine for UFC to sign this deal. Obviously, you know, we know why they signed it because there's this money to be made in sponsorship right in that space and they want to have control over it because they they believe that they rightfully have that they're entitled to it because they believe they're the ones creating it. That's what this is all about. And cleaning up the sports look. Um but you know, the real issue is control over that space. Uh Okay, fine. Right. But, you know, do you know anybody who wears Reebok? <laughs> I'm not even trying to be a hater, man. I really am not. I don't. You know, maybe somebody who does CrossFit or something like that. But, like, uh, and, of course, you see people wear all different kinds of things on the street. But, like, you know, like Adidas and Nike have, and, like, Under Armour here, especially Under Armour around here because it's based in Maryland, have, uh, you know, people, like, loyal to the brand. So it says companies like Venom, Hayabusa, and and what's wrong with and first of all, what's wrong with Brandon Schaub speaking his mind? People act like it's some controversial s when a fighter finally speaks his mind. It should not be controversial. He's voicing his opinion. Like who cares? You know what I mean? I'm not. Uh, it's like uh, I don't care in the sense that you know I'm ignoring it, but I don't care in the sense that I think it's some sort of like novel activity. I think a lot more fighters should do it, especially if they like Reebok. And if you like the deal, I want to hear about it. If you don't like it, I also want to hear about it. Um, I think you should just speak your mind however it is. Someone says, companies like Venom, Hayabusa, and Bad Boy. Um, wondering your thoughts on these companies' next step to stay relevant and alive now that they have no exposure during fight weeks or fights. Venom has clearly been trying to market the BJJ community. That's true. And Hayabusa going after the kickboxing market with their glory deal. Also, Hayabusa sponsors Bushesha. His gi is tremendous. A couple of my teammates have it. It is badass. Uh, do you believe this is enough to keep these companies alive? And what sort of approach can Bad Boy take to this situation? I don't know. We're going to find out. I mean, you'll still see them on Bellator uh, events. I saw some terrible movie. I think a Bruce Willis movie where, like, the villain was wearing a Venom shirt. Um, I don't know. But anyway, um, someone says, I personally love my Venom gear. I'm hoping that they can stay relevant. Look, buy their stuff if you like them, you know. Um, I bought I bought the Adidas Gi, the new Jiu-Jitsu combat gear gi stuff, because I think it's awesome. And I want to support a company whose stuff I like, both aesthetically and from a performance standpoint. So you can do that. Again, you'll still see them on Bellator broadcasts and other places as well. I think Adidas has a deal with RFA. So, um, you know, these brands aren't necessarily going away, but they are going to have to be very creative about how they get 
the same kind of exposure that they got before. Uh, and I don't know what the answer to that is, truly. I mean, are you going to get more involved in submission grappling events to some extent? Maybe. You mentioned before Hayabusa had the deal with Glory. Okay, that helps, you know. Um, but none of these seem to be, like, substitutes. They're going to have to sort of truly rethink how they use that money and, and, and ways to get return on their investment from an advertising standpoint. Oh, um, I had a radiologist look at the stuff that uh, Jose Aldo sent around that came out. I wanted, I wanted to make a note about this. Um, here's what he said. First of all, there's more medical, like you have to see the original, um, you know, CT and MRI scans, not stuff that's been put on the internet. Like that's the only way you can really tell. So partly there's just hard ability to tell. Um, but what he said was the CT scans, you just can't, you can't do a lot with those because you can make those look any different kind of ways. He said the MRI one was the one that was most interesting because what you're looking for, for a, the brighter, this is how it was explained to me, the brighter the spot is on the ribs, the more likely it's a, a fracture, the duller it is, the more likely it's just sort of cartilage damage or, um, uh, something else. Here was his read. By looking at the MRI, can you definitively 100% absolutely conclude that it is a break? No. His guess is that it is a break. He says it has all the trimmings of the break, but he just couldn't put his name on something saying, oh, it's a 100% break without having the actual MRIs in front of him. But he was saying if you look at how bright it is and then the linear way in which the, the, the light comes off, that it, like, you know, indicating a line of the, of the fracture, that is like a telltale sign of a break. You can't be sure it is. And so I asked him was, could you say it was a bruised rib? He's like, you could. It's not the one he would give. Um, and as he goes, you know, and, and he had sort of said that if he had seen the actual MRIs and they're clear that it's like even really bright and you could see the line, then of course you could never say it was not a break. It's 100% a break. So his sense was that based on what he saw from the internet, which is not much, it is most likely a break just not one he can say with absolute certainty as a break. That doesn't mean that the doctors who have the actual things can't make a more accurate reading. We don't know what Dr. Jeff Davidson had, the UFC doctor, or the one that Aldo's camp uh, used during um, this whole brouhaha. But I want to make that known. So it says, you were not watching a Bruce Willis movie. You were watching Let's Be Cops. <laughs> I guess I was. Let's be. That was a terrible movie. How tired of you are? How tired are you of the Reebok topic? I am not tired at all. Uh, okay, IV ban at women's bantamweight. Many fighters are going to have to move up a weight class due to the IV ban. Blah 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 blah. Does this jeopardize women's fights at bantamweight? It jeopardizes fights at every weight class. What else? What else? What else we got? Real quick. Could you speak to how generally aware fighters are about the supplements being put in their body? Again, I think it runs the gamut. I think some guys are very, you know, they want to know exactly what they're putting in. Um, I think other guys don't care at all. I think some guys try to care but don't really know. Like, 
if you read the back of what's on a GNC bottle, do you have any idea what this stuff is? These like chemical compounds that are probably terrible for your kidneys. Does the average person really know? Probably not. The average person probably does not know. So, uh, so I don't put a whole lot of stock in that. I don't, it doesn't, you know, I, it doesn't absolve fighters of responsibility about what they put into their bodies at the same time, you know, providing a list for them is probably the better thing because they're just not going to know exactly what is and what isn't okay. You can buy stuff at GNC called like pro hormones, right? That sort of are designed to boost your testosterone. S- depending on your, your biological makeup, this stuff can, can have a pretty profound effect on you. You know, not the same as doing steroids, but not negligible either. A uh, couple more, and we'll get this going. Luke, in less than two months, Zufa will present UFC 191 headlined by TBA versus TBA. Not one fight has been announced with only 58 days to go until this event is scheduled. Thoughts? If they don't start scheduling it soon, they're just going to pass it over. It has to be, right? Because that was supposed to be the Cormier-Gustafson one, but that never really got put in motion there in the, in a, in the same kind of way. Okay, Luke. Below are some numbers for the first half of 2015. Anything interest you? Events, 21. The UFC is on par to do 42 events this year, four fewer than 2014 where there were 46. Each event averages about 11.3 fights, which is higher than 2014's average of 10.9, but far below 2013's average of 12.5. I think less is more. Finishes. And 2015 has offered up a robust 55% finishing rate and is on pace to be the highest we've had in a calendar year since 2009. In 2014, 50. 2013, 51. 2012, 52. 2011, 50. 2010, 51. 2009, 56. So more than half of all UFC fights are finished, and that has been a trend since at least 2009. In a related topic, the decision rate is down to 44%, it is on pace to be the lowest we've seen since 2009, which itself was 43. In 2015, knockouts have come while in close confines more than usual for recent years. 2015, distance was 40, clinch 28, ground 21. If you look at the makeups for 2014, distance 47, clinch 21, ground 16. In 2013, distance 52, clinch 21, ground 22. And then... Uh, 2012, distance 56, clinch 19, ground 18. Guys are getting better about tricking, like you saw Condit, you know, throwing the elbow in tight quarters. You see Matt Brown, Ty Plum coming over with elbows, or guys finishing with knees, dropping people there, you know. It's amazing. Guys uh, standing guillotines sometimes from those positions. Um, So, yeah, the clinch is becoming a better space to finish a guy than it used to be. And then someone says, the biggest influence to the uptick in finishes may be submission accuracy. In 2011, it was only 19%. 2012, 25. 2013, 22. 2014, 25. In 2015, 33%. In fact, should 2015's midway mark of 33% of submission accuracy hold up, it would be by far the highest since way back in 1997 when attempts succeeded 56% of the time. Pretty interesting data uh, there. And as I mentioned before, I think that, like, the guillotine has been so transformed, both from no-gi adaptation that was brought to MMA and then MMA's own adaptation. So you have two different ways in which the guillotine has been modernized and improved to such a tremendous degree that it's now one of your more central submissions than it ever was. Uh, okay, and I think I think that's all the time we have. It is. Okay, um, so again, if you're watching this on my 
uh, channel. I'm going to take it off of here, and I'm going to put it on MMA Fighting. I apologize for the inconvenience. Hopefully, it's not this way next week. We're working on it, um, but we appreciate I appreciate your patience. Give this video a thumbs up. Share it as far wide as you can with everyone on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, all that good stuff. I'm on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas, Facebook.com slash Luke T Sports. And of course, you can email me, Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. Thank you for watching. If I didn't get to your question, I will do my best. I appreciate it. Until next time, stay frosty. <laughs>